If you'll take your Bibles and uh, join me in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're going to do a, a little topical work tonight um, around the topic of the Christian calling, uh, fellowship, uh, to know and to fellowship with God. I've been reading, uh, rereading again John Owen's book, um, Communion with God, and the Communion with the Triune God. It just really uh, is a rich, rich treatise on just what the Christian privilege we have. Uh, and if you think about it, we tell the world quite a radical message. Uh, we tell the world that we know uh, the one true God, not of our own, um, not of our own choosing, but He has made Himself known to us. And so we. We actually have a radical message which should lead to radical lives. And radical lives are the result of a radical fellowship with the triune God. So let's read down the first four verses or three verses of uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer. Jesus spoke these things and raising his hand, his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Just as you've given him authority over all mankind, so that to tell all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. To all whom he, you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Father, thank you for your word. and uh, Encourage us uh, to hunger more for fellowship with you, with your Son, and with your Spirit. Uh, may we know more and more of the, the wonders and the beauty of our God. And... and and so have a passion like the psalmist, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you. And that in doing so, that we would be transformed more into the image of Christ. Uh, the world would take notice that we'd been with him. And as a result, we can be about uh, our mission in our generation. And Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your people tonight. We thank you for uh, a warm place where we could open up our Bibles. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. You know, J.I. Packer, I don't know if you've uh, ever read his book, uh, the classic Knowing God. I would encourage you, you do. Uh, Packer said, quote, what were we made for? Knowing God. What should our aim in life be? Knowing God. What is the best thing in life? Knowing God. What is the eternal life Christ gives? Knowing God. What in us gives God the most pleasure? Knowing God, end quote. Uh, I was talking to someone and, uh, recently, and I said, what is the definition of eternal life? And just a quick answer was, well, it means to live forever. I said, no, that's not what it means. That's immortality. Uh, we all are, are immortal souls. We'll live forever. Well, what does eternal life mean? Uh, Jesus defines it for us in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they know, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And that's one of those easy f f uh, phrases to say, well, I know the living God. But have you really thought long and hard just what that means and just the nature of, of how God has revealed himself to us in a triune way so that we can know him. And there is a distinct fellowship that we are to enjoy with each member of the Trinity. Um, I think sometimes we, we maybe shortchange the Father. We will use him as a tag in the opening of our prayers, our Heavenly Father, and then we'll jump into our petitions, and then we have to have the tag at the end in Jesus' name. And all the time through that, do we really understand what we are doing and who we are approaching? Well, I hope to encourage you tonight uh, with the aspect of Trinitarian fellowship uh, to see uh, in, in a small way. You can't do this in one. This will be a lifetime of sermons, but... Um, just for your own edification and my own um, passion is that I would know this God, that we would know this God and, in, 
And in turn, as I prayed, that we would be transformed. Now, Jesus would go further on in John 17, the high priestly prayer, and he would offer the petition to his father, and he would say, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And he would say this, to see my glory that you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you know the eternal state is going to be one of endless fellowship that is perfect? It's going to be beholding the glory of the Lord. And we're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we are to behold the glory of the Lord now in some measure. And in that glory becomes the transformation of our character into the image of Christ. And your greatest impact in your sphere of influence will be your Christ-likeness, not your activity. It won't be your, your, how much ministry you do. It will be how much you're like Jesus. McShane said that. He says, you know, the greatest need that my people have is my likeness to Jesus. And I think that's so true. As McShane further went on to say that it's not great talents that God uses. It's great likeness to the Lord Jesus. So, and you can only grow into the likeness of the one that you are growing in knowledge of. Not knowledge of in just a factual way, but knowledge uh, both in a factual and an experiential way. And I think in the reform circles, we need to recover uh, that we have an experiential faith, that we have a, a very real faith. It's not just to lie in the heads of knowledge. It is not to be just a, a, a big head full of knowledge. It is to be a head that inflames the heart, that infects the life. And that's what theology does. Theology should inform your head, it should inflame your heart, and it should move your will. Uh, if it's not doing all three, if it's not affecting our heads, our hearts, and our wills, then I would argue that uh, you're missing the proper understanding of what theology is. And so Jesus would say this. He would say that I want them to be with me. And what, were they, what does he want? He wants them to behold his glory. Because we are most satisfied when we are enamored with him, when we are captured by his beauty, when we are captured by his person. That's when the Christian life becomes real. Now, I'm not trying to make this some idealistic where we live on the Mount of Transfiguration all the time. We just come out of Romans 7 this morning, so we know that's not true. Uh, but there should be a very real sense that we're able to, to live above the inward conflict because of our growing relationship with the living God. The Apostle Paul would recognize... Um, that it was this fellowship with God that would unite the church. The church in Corinth, as you know, was a mess. 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Spirit is implied there. I find it interesting that Paul would address the division. He would address the abuse of the Lord's table. He would uh, address the abuse of spiritual gifts. He would start out in the introduction by calling them to remember what they were called to. And what they were called to is fellowship with God. And when you're in fellowship with God, uh, that's where we find the greatest unity. That's where we find the greatest uh, oneness among God's people. Uh, when I have encountered people in conflict and counseled people in conflict, you know what is noticeably absent in those periods of conflict? It is the power of the gospel. It is people that are not even talking about Jesus. They're not even talking about fellowship with God. They're talking about, well, they've hurt me and he's hurt me and this and this. It's all horizontal. It's not vertical. And so when we get back to fellowship with God, uh, that will solve a, a lot of our problems. It doesn't make the conflict any less intense, but it does make the conflict meaningful. And so we're able to, uh, um, uh, to understand this more. And he would close out 2 Corinthians 13 uh, with one of the great uh, benedictions. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Clearly one of the strongest verses in defense of the Trinity. That he would, he would give a Trinitarian benediction. 
And then we have also in 1 John, 1 John, uh, John would give us right out of the gate uh, as he was very explosive in the opening of the Gospel of John with the eternality as well as uh, um, uh, the human nature of Christ. In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, we had the same thing with an additional uh, call to fellowship. He would say, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, knowing God, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. And notice this, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Though the Spirit is not mentioned, uh, 1 John, the Spirit is everywhere. Uh, we will find in 1 John chapter 4, uh, there is the mention of the Spirit enabling someone to confess that Christ has come in the flesh. In fact, Jonathan Edwards uh, would preach a series of sermons out of 1 John 4, which he labeled the distinguishing marks of a true work of God, giving the evidence of the Spirit who points to Christ. And then we have in the second letter of Corinthians, Paul would give the uh, a trinitarian nature of, of the work being done in the church. And I'll read this to you, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. Now concerning the Spirit's gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking, now get the work of the Trinity here, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we have two members of the Trinity mentioned in the work of the Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. These are, are the varieties of effects but the same God which would be the Father who works all things things in all persons. So throughout Corinthians, he would address their problems with a Trinitarian approach. Now, I gave you a, a definition of fellowship uh, on your handout there. I'm not going to read that. It's just for your own encouragement. Uh, this was a book written by uh, Jerry Bridges a long time ago. It's been uh, uh, remade. Uh, there's an addition, or I should say an, uh, an updated addition to it. Um, I think it's called True Community. But the crisis of caring, he would go through the Greek word. I just want to take notice what true fellowship is. Because sometimes I think we misunderstand what it means. Uh, we're going to have uh, the meal after the morning service next Sunday in Fellowship Hall. And we're going to call that fellowship. Uh, we need to make sure that we include God in that fellowship. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of people getting together to have some food. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. We're good at that. We do food good here. And so, but the point I want to get at, be careful that we don't under, we mistake Christian fellowship when it's really just Christian social activity, is we'll get together and we'll do something, and that is Christians socializing, but if it, in order to be fellowship, it's got to meet the criteria of what the Bible says fellowship is. And if you notice here a little on, on Bridges' definition, I'm not against Christian socialization. We need to have social acts and have fun together. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but let's make sure that we don't call fellowship what it may not be. Uh, a little further down, he says, Fellowship is sharing a common life with other believers. A life that we together share with God the Father and God the Son. It is a relationship, not an activity. Biblical fellowship then incorporates this idea of an active partnership in the promotion of the gospel and the building up of believers. 
That's a very solid understanding of what biblical fellowship. It is, as the, as the Greek word, koinonia, would tell us, it is a partnership, it is a participation, a sharing, and it is centered around a joint life together. So when I'm fellowshipping, if I'm fellowshipping uh, with, if Joy and I are fellowshipping with Ben and, and Rosalinda, and then the, the element of that, there has to be a Christ-centeredness in that. There has to be God brought into the fellowship. And that's the shared life that we have in Christ um, that unites us to uh, the, the whole of the Godhead. So that's kind of a definition of that. And I want us just to the briefly for the, uh, the time we have, I want us to look at the fellowship with each member of the Trinity. But it's important we understand, if you'll turn to 1 John 1, 1 John 1, uh, we're not going to turn to a lot of scripture. I'll read a lot to you, but I want you to read this one. There is a requirement for fellowship. Now, the requirement for Christian social uh, activity is just showing up. Uh, but for Christian fellowship, there is a distinct requirement that we have to meet. And that requirement, if we're going to fellowship vertically with the triune God and thus horizontally with his people, there has to be a life of consistent obedience. Uh, it's not a, a perfect obedience by no means, but it is a consistent obedience. 1 John 1, 6 through 7. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, remember what fellowship means, a shared life. That means shared goals, shared desires, uh, shared mission, if we say we have a shared life with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, a shared life with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Uh, very encouraging verses here. It challenges us to a life of obedience. But it also reminds us that when we walk in fellowship, we have the constant uh, effects of the atonement applied to us. We have the advocacy of Christ. We have the mediation of Christ as it goes on in the Christian experience. And so that's one thing we have to understand is one of my biggest dangers, one of my biggest concerns in my life, and it is for us as Christians, is you can, you can live life and not live life. You can just go through the routines of life and just go through all the things that God has told us. And you can execute routines in your life, but yet not live life. And Jesus said, and this is life, that you would have it abundantly. And so the abundant life is not a dull life. It's not a, it's not a boring life. And so when, you say that, when, you say, when I say to you that you'd be in, in danger of living life but missing life, you can have routines and all of us have routines, but it's not okay to be routine. There's a difference, is that we should never see our Christian life being one of just dull routine. How, in fact, could it be if we are walking in fellowship with the triune God? How could it possibly be? Uh, um, I, I heard one time it, someone told me, you know, it's just church is boring. I, I said, church is boring. He says, when we get to heaven, are we, are, is it going to be just one endless church service? I said, well, I hope not. I said, there's times, you know, that, you know, the church, we come, you know, and, and we may not sense the Lord's presence. I said, we still are simple people. I said, but there'll be no boredom in heaven. There'll be no lack of in heaven. And I think in a measurement, in some measurement, we should find that the Christian life uh, is not some dull routine either. And how could it be when we have a God to know, a devil to fight, a world to uh, resist, a flesh to put under, how could it be boring? Those are at least four areas uh, of conflict that we are called to. So, but let's, let's, find, let's find a little bit of encouragement here with this Trinitarian fellowship. Sinclair Ferguson uh, quotes, uh, The Christian life is nothing less than fellowship with God the Trinity, leading to the full assurance of faith, end quote. Well, let's, let's work our way through 
uh, each member of the Trinity. I'm just going to give you a few things here. Um, it's, it's by no means, no human being could exhaust this. But first, fellowship with God the Father. Fellowship with God the Father. Now, one of the ways that you understand, you know, the role of the Father in your life, how is your prayer life shaped? How is your prayer life shaped? Do you find yourself crying out with the help of the Spirit? Do you cry, find yourself crying out, Abba, Father? Do you find yourself in that, in that realm that you know God is your Father? Not this generic, uh, oh God, that, that language that oftentimes sounds just so, so nebulous, so like a vague spiritual power. There's no intimacy. There's no personality there. Jesus would tell us to pray how? Our Father. Paul, if you look at his prayer life, it was uh, centered on God the Father. Now, John Owen would make it clear that it's okay to pray to other members of the Trinity, and it certainly is. They are equally God. But we are given the template, so to speak, and I don't want to dismiss that in a relational context, but we are given the template that God the Father is the one that we are to pray pray to. And let us remember that when it comes to the gospel, where did the gospel originate from? The gospel originated from the mind of God the Father. It was God the Father who commissions the Son. It's the Son who accepts the commission. It's the Son who executes the mission of the gospel. And it's the Spirit of God who applies it to the believing sinner. The, the believer who's been given new birth, who has the ability and the, and the gift of faith and repentance. And so it's important we see that it isn't the Jesus, when he says a mediation or our advocate, he's not pleading with the Father to accept us. That's not what happens. And there are some people that have a very harsh view of God the Father. He's not a hard taskmaster by any means. He is the one that orchestrates the gospel. He is the, the heavenly Father who loves the elect, and he has given an elect people to his Son. Read John 17, I think six times, you'll find that Jesus says, Father, all those whom you have given me. It's the Father who gives the Son a trophy of his grace, and we are those trophies. And so understand that the fellowship with God the Father is primarily in love. Now, I want to be careful with that word primarily. Because all members of the Trinity, these all apply to them. But it's the Father. It's the Father who comes to us primarily in love. And He wants us to understand that He is the God of love. It is His nature. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And God Himself, He proclaimed, there was a self-proclamation that He is love. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And he goes on, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Is it, this is, this, you, you must have this settled in your mind, and I, I likewise. Is it, that it is God the Father's nature to love. John Owen, again, he says, uh, quote, This is the will of God, that he may always be eyed as a benign, kind, tender, loving, and unchangeable therein. And that peculiarly as the Father, as the great fountain and spring of all gracious communications and fruits of love. One of the greatest things that we can do to, to hurt, for the lack of a better term, the heart of God is to question His love and question the love of the Father. And some of us struggle with that. And I understand that. I struggled with that. 
And I do a kind of struggle because what does the devil want to get you to do? If he can get you to doubt the love of God, get the doubt of the love of the Father to you, tell me how effective you'll be for your witness for the, for the Lord Jesus. You won't be. If you don't have confidence that God loves you, then you certainly won't have confidence to project to the world that God is love. And so our fellowship with God the Father is founded on, on the, the fact that his nature is love. Secondly, it is his will to exercise such love. It is his will to exercise such love. Jesus in the upper room discourse, that, that great uh, intimate setting with his disciples, he would say this to them, these timid, fearful disciples. In John chapter 16, verse 27, he would say, for the Father himself loves you. Why add the word himself to the emphasis to distance himself and say, listen, I surely love you, and I'm going to show you here shortly. But the Father himself loves you, and the Father himself has sent me. And so please don't question that. Don't question uh, the love of the Father, because our fellowship with him is foremost in love. Now, what you have to do is you have to make sure that you remember it is God's nature to love, and it is his will to love. And it's also his delight to love. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will, he will calm you down. Octavius Winslow expounded on that verse uh, at great length. And he says, uh, when it says that God will quiet you by his love, he's able to do that because his wrath has been quieted by his son. And so how heartwarming is that? Is that he's able to quiet you. He's able to quiet the mind. He's able to quiet uh, the restless heart at night when we're being racked with doubts and fears and all the anxieties of life. He's able to quiet, uh, quiet you by his love because he's quieted his wrath by his son. Another display of his love. And I, I can't stress the importance of this because when you're in the depths of Romans 7, and you don't understand the things that you do, and you don't want to do the things that you're doing, it is easy to get wrapped up and judge your Christianity or judge your relationship with God based on what you do or what you don't do, and that just leads you to all bad places. Is that you will never measure up, I will never measure up. God doesn't love me because I'm good, because I'm not. And God doesn't love me because I can earn it, I can't. Nor does God love me uh, because I merit it, I don't. And I could change the, the, the I to you, none of us. We don't, we don't earn it, and we don't merit it, uh, none of those things. He loves me because he loves me. And that should be enough, is that we understand this. And so if, you're, if we're going to know anything of this Trinitarian fellowship with God, it must begin with seeing fellowship with God the Father is based on love. It is initiated by him. It is sustained by him. It will never be removed from us by him. It is a constant and that does not lead to presumption. That leads to humble adoration. Is if we proper, uh, properly understand that God so loved the world and that he loved us when we were certainly unlovable, enemies at that, uh, that should humble us to fall before him in such a spirit of adoration is that he is quieted and he never looks upon us other than through the lens of divine electing love. And that's what the fellowship with the Father is. And that will enhance your prayer life. Is that you will be confident because you're praying to a Father. A Father who loves you. 
a father who always loves you, a father who will never stop loving you, and a father who knows you in all your messiness and all of your confusion and all of your Romans 7's experiences. Remember, I told you, make sure that when you read Romans 7, you read Romans 6 and 8 with it. Do not, do not dive into Romans 7 and walk out of there unless you have Romans 6 as your first break wall uh, of the crashing waves of Romans 7 and the second break wall is Romans 8. If you don't have those pillars in between there, uh, Romans 7 can be a rough place to live. So, and that's because of God the, God the Father is the God of love. Now, let's look at uh, fellowship with God the Son. God the Son. Now, if God the Father... Fellowship with him is primarily in love. Now, now get this too, is it John 15, 9, and Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. I think it's important that we understand that this love that exists in the Trinity is a love that is bestowed upon us. I mean, that's staggering to, to when you look at your own life. And if, if all of us right now had our insides exposed to all of us, we'd all run and hide. You know, but God sees everything about us, and yet He has bestowed upon us a Trinitarian love where Jesus would say, As the Father has loved me, so He loves you. That will take us out of any pit of despondency if we meditate long and hard, is to think that the Father, the eternal Father, has placed His love upon us of equal magnitude that He has for His Son, the Lord Jesus. And so one of the great uh, uh, hurts that we could do to him is to doubt that love. But yet that is certainly one of the, uh, one of the tactics of the devil is to get us to doubt God's love. And, and when you're in, in, the, in the midst of deep trials and suffering and the pain is real and your heart is broken and you feel like your prayers aren't getting above the ceilings, uh, it's so easy to listen to, to, the, to, 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 listen to the lies of the, uh, the evil one. See, God doesn't love you. He's not, quite, he's, not, he's not answering your prayers. He's not giving, remember he's the God of all comfort. Where is it? Understand this, you know, that, that God is the God of all comfort. But God chooses to comfort his people, his timing and his ways. Our responsibility is to trust him and submit to him. I don't understand God's ways, but I can trust his ways. And that's important for us to remember that his love is fixed. We saw this morning in our ABF is uh, we're doing a, uh, um, a class on assurance. And assurance for the believer is first and foremost rooted in the objective truths of God's promises. And next week we're going to look at how there's a subjective evidence of assurance, which is the evidence of the Spirit's uh, graces within and otherwise. But just like God's love, God's love for us is not a, a love that is first experiential because the world is all about emotion and all about feelings. And, and don't, don't misquote me. We have, uh, we have a felt Christ. We have a felt Christ. We have a felt God. Uh, but if you're looking for the assurance of his love for you based on what you feel, then you're asking to be in heaven now. Uh, that's not what we're supposed to. We live by faith. And we accept what God says. And what God says is, I have loved you with an everlasting love, and I will not take my love off of you. As I have loved my son, so I love you. That is where we anchor ourselves on those promises of his unchanging character. He, unlike me and you, he cannot lie. And when he says, I have placed you, my love upon you, when I have given you to my son as a trophy of my grace, then we can take that to the bank and we can rest on that. And though the, the waves may crash over us of tough circumstances, we know that there's going to be a time that that's over. That the suffering will be over. 
because we rest in the eternal love of the Father. Now let's take a look at fellowship with God the Son. If it's the Father, the fellowship in love, the fellowship with God the Son, we could say that it's primarily uh, in grace, in grace. That's not to dismiss Jesus' love for us. As I told you earlier, every one of these uh, primarilys is also in the, each member of the Trinity. But I wanted to focus on, on just of, of what we read in the Scripture is most manifest about the Father and about the Son. And this one here, fellowship with God the Son, is primarily in grace. In grace. If it wasn't for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, certainly uh, orchestrated by the Father, we wouldn't be here tonight. None of us. If there's no grace flowing from uh, the throne of mercy and grace through Jesus Christ, we wouldn't be here. Because if you try to approach God, one, you can't approach Him as God the Father unless you have Him as such through Christ. If you try to approach God without Jesus Christ, you are meeting a consuming fire. You are meeting a God who is holy, 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 and you stand guilty before Him and you have no recourse. You are going to be under his wrath, and that's because of his unchanging nature. So this grace, Christ comes to us by grace. He is certainly God's gift to us of grace. But it's very interesting that John would start out in the opening of his gospel is that he would focus on two things about the Lord Jesus. After he gets done with proclaiming him as being uh, uh, the uh, co-creator, that in him was life, he, all things were created by him. He further on down, and he gives us one of, the, one of the greatest Christmas verses ever, and in the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen the glory, the glory as the only son from the Father. And notice what we get from him. The two greatest things that we need. He was full of grace and truth. For the law, in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that John would repeat himself twice by saying that Jesus is full of grace and truth. Um, we need grace and truth. You can't separate those. I don't need truth only. Because all truth does is reveal that I'm condemned. And that I'm under the wrath of God. I don't need truth alone. I need truth and I need grace. And you need grace as well. And how does that grace come? It comes through the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, Paul would say, The grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Spirit be upon you all. I read that earlier. Trace through the Scripture and find how many times that the apostle would refer to the grace that's in the Lord Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, gift of Father. And the gift is what? The grace gift of the Lord Jesus. We need to recover more and more uh, the nature of grace as it is in Jesus. We need to see him as he is. He's the one that said, come unto me, all ye that labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am meek and lowly at heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. We could also embed within that, in all of that, because I am the, I am the one that's full of grace and truth. I am the one that's full of grace it's also when you know the grace of God in Christ Jesus, that's when you really understand the fatherhood of God. That's when you're connected and you're able to see the Father uh, and, and the Son in their corroboration of the gospel and Christ's coming. So the first thing we see that our fellowship with, with God the Son is primarily in grace. Always learn to see the Lord Jesus as the fountainhead of God's grace. 
Yes, he's God. Yes, it, uh, but there's so many examples when you read the Gospels, and I've encouraged you numerous times, take a heavy dose of the Gospels. Walk with Jesus in the Gospels. And walk with him and see how he interacts with people. And walk with him, and it may not be stated in those accounts, but it certainly is clear of his grace that is overflowing towards people. What about the woman caught in adultery? That is one of the most, most pronounced accounts of, of overflowing grace. Is she standing there before the very one whose law she had broken? And yet you don't have him standing up and condemning her as if, uh, as, as if she thought that maybe he might. She probably did. But what does he give her? He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You know what that is? That is abundant grace. That is overflowing grace. And what about when Peter, Peter and the boys come ashore and they have breakfast. And they're all sitting around. And I wonder if they're all thinking, I wonder when he's going to bring it up. I wonder when he's going to remind us, I told you so. You all were going to deny me. I told you so. I don't think they had much of an appetite at breakfast. And so they're sitting there and they, they have breakfast. And then Peter and Jesus get aside. And I, I'm, I'm sure Peter's thinking, okay, here it comes. But what happened? What did Jesus give Peter? Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter, you know, grieving over those. What did, what did Peter get at that moment? He got abundant grace. He got overflowing grace. And throughout the Apostle Paul, do you know what, do you know what Paul got on the Damascus Road? He got overwhelming grace. And you know what Paul got throughout his sufferings, throughout his shipwrecks, his beatings, and even and he's, 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 he's awakened at night in a vision in the book of Acts, and the Lord comes to him and says, don't be afraid. I know we have a tendency to think the apostle Paul was this super Christian, that he never suffered the same frailties as we do. He was afraid. And the Lord showed up to him and says, uh, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have many people in this town. What did Paul receive? He received abundant grace. And for us, our fellowship in the Lord Jesus Christ is that of abundant grace. And get this, every time you fall and every time that, that, that you stumble and every time that, that you feel as though that, uh, that Romans 7 has defeated you for the last time, do you know what you receive? There's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. 8.1. You know what 8.1 is? Abundant grace. And so our fellowship with, with Jesus is that of grace. It is personal it is active. And I just gave you about four examples. And look in your own life. Sit down and think about in your own life. Go back and see all the times of your fumblings and your bumblings as a Christian. And go back and look and see what you got from the Lord Jesus every time. You got abundant grace. You got amazing grace. And that's our fellowship with him. It's in this grace. And you know what that is to do to us? You know what that do to me? Is that when I understand the love of the Father to me and that I am a trophy given unto His Son and I can marvel and pray to the God who is my Father, who's the Creator who said that you can call me Father. And when that, that comes, comes down to me through the Lord Jesus and I see the grace that I constantly get every day that I don't deserve, you know what that should do for me and it should do for you too? It should empower you to give grace to every single person you meet. We don't know Christ just to know Christ. 
We don't know God the Father just to know God the Father. We know the Trinity to be transformed. To be transformed into the image of Him who is full of love and full of grace. And so we see that fellowship with God the Son is primarily in grace. It's His nature. Um, He delights like the Father delights in love and quieting us by His love. The Lord Jesus wants to come alongside of us and quiet the voices of condemnation with His grace. He wants us to know that I am the God of all grace. I am the God of all grace who never will ever run dry in the deep wells of my grace. Now, what about the fellowship with uh, God the Spirit? God the Spirit. Well, we take that from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 14, that benediction that I read. He said, fellowship with the Spirit. Now, in order to understand the fellowship with the Holy Spirit, we need to understand what His primary role is. Because there's a lot of stuff out there in, if it's able to call it contemporary Christianity, that says it's of the Spirit that I question. There's a lot of stuff out there that we've got to be careful and very discerning. And so, when you look at the role of the Holy Spirit... Because we've seen numerous times where God the Father is mentioned, God the Son is mentioned, but the Spirit is implied. Why is that? Because the Spirit does not draw attention to Himself. He does not. His role, His primary role, is that of revealing Christ, of elevating Christ. Yes, He has the role of bringing conviction of sin, of judgment, uh, which Jesus would say is His role, and of righteousness, because He did not believe on me in John 16. But if you had to, uh, to really bring down the primary role of the Holy Spirit and our fellowship with Him, he, is, he was given primarily to reveal Christ. To reveal Christ as the Savior to, uh, uh, to repenting sinners and to continue to reveal Christ to the believing saint. And there should be this ongoing progression in the grace of Christ and the love of the Father where we see more and more of the beauty of our God. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit. John Owen again would say the coming of the Holy Spirit is not his eternal procession, but his function to testify of Christ. So that's one of the great ways we can determine whether what we hear out there, what we see, and even our own experience, what are we knowing of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is elevating Christ. And if you're in your churches and you're seeing Christ elevated and you're seeing that it's all the Christocentricness of the preaching and the Christocentric nature of the singing and of the fellowship, then, then I, would, I would have a, a high level of confidence that the Spirit of God is working among those people. But if it's all about the Holy Spirit, and we're all about seeking experience, we're all about the worshiper, it's all about you know, the, the feelings of this and, and the this and this, and you know, we've got to be very careful. Because if the Spirit of God did not come first to give us an experience, He came to give us Christ. He came to... Ex- now, there will be experience. How can you not? How can you not behold the wonder and the beauty of, of our God without some... But let's make sure that God defines the experience on His terms according to His Word and not what we may think it is. But let me just offer you three things about uh, this ministry of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship that we're to have with Him. And this is what He will do for us and to us. The first thing, as I mentioned, He will draw attention to Christ. He will draw attention to Christ. John 16, 12 through 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. Hold on to that. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. 
The truth of the Spirit of God through the Scripture will point us to Christ, to magnify Christ, to increase Christ, to decrease ourselves. So the first thing that we have, and when we open our Bibles, we should ask that. We should even have the simple prayer, Father, would you allow your Spirit to show me more of Christ? Show me more of the Lord Jesus. Show me more of the beauty of my Savior. Another thing that we have in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is our, our fellowship, is that He will remind us, and we'll look at this more and more, because we're going to spend multiple weeks in Romans chapter 8. Uh, I want to really break down what, what we can gain by encouragement from the spirit of adoption. Is that This is what the, the Spirit of God will do in the believer, in the obedient believer. He will affirm to us our adoption, but He will affirm to us our union with Christ. To me, that's one of the great, and I, I've said this numerous times, is that we, we live in an age where we need more preaching and teaching on this union that we have with Christ. What does it mean? Because that was one of the, one of the, the strengths of the Puritan period was they stressed the union of Christ with the believer. And that, to me, is throughout the Bible. Paul just refers, uh, in Pauline theology, he refers over 160 times to the believer's union in Christ. Well, this is what the Spirit of God will do. He will witness with our spirit, and we'll talk about what that means when we get to Romans 8. But the Spirit of God in fellowship with Him, with Him, He'll give us the assurance that we are one with Christ. Romans 8, 15 through 17, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself, there's that emphasis again, when his exclusive ministry bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The fellowship with the spirit is that of inhabitation. Inhabitation. He will remind us. He will remind us of our union with Christ. He will remind us of the sealing that he has done. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. So then how do we fellowship with the Holy Spirit? Well, we know that he is opening up the scriptures, pointing us to Christ. Secondly, he is affirming our union with Christ, that we are indeed a child of God. And then thirdly, the ministry of the Spirit and our fellowship with him, he provides for us the power to witness for Christ. It won't be our uh, charismatic personalities or our ability to drive someone down the Romans road. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just, it's... It's the empowerment of the Spirit of God in the believer that overcomes the fear of witnessing for Christ. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we find that when Jesus gets ready to go back to heaven, he tells the disciples and he tells us, but you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit when he's come upon you. And he did not say that he would receive the power of the Holy Spirit so that you draw much attention to yourself and help you get through a rough day. That's not what he said. He says that you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. Is that the Holy Spirit will draw attention away from ourselves and draw our attention upon Christ. And once we are fellowshipping with the triune God, we know more and more of love of the Father, more and more of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more and more the ministry of the Holy Spirit showing us Christ, we can't help but be about the business of sharing the gospel. How do you overcome fear of witnessing? Any of you ever be afraid, been afraid that you, you were in a situation where you could have said much about Christ and you never said anything? All of you. I have. I have. I've been in environments where I should have said much and I said nothing. Why? Because we fear man more than we fear God. 
And how do you overcome that? Paul says that to Timothy, you do not have the spirit of fear. And he would say that in the book of Acts is that when they were persecuted, they went back, the people of God, and they prayed. And what did they pray? Lord, stop the persecution? No. They said, Lord, look upon their threats and grant that your servants would continue to speak your word with boldness. And then in verse 31, it says, And together the place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the evidence of being filled? It wasn't some gibberish. It said, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Do you want to know if we're walking in the power and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? There will be a boldness about sharing the, the word of God and sharing the gospel. It won't be an arrogance. It won't be any of that hurtful truth without love. It will be a boldness that allows us to make much of Christ because the Spirit makes much of Christ through us. And people would say even of us, I've never heard such words. And you will be able to say, well, it's not my words. Let me tell you about a creator who's willing to be your father. And let me tell you about a wonderful savior who's full of grace. And all behind the scenes, it's the spirit of God that's wooing the sinner by your words, elevating Christ to draw that sinner to him. For the sake of time, I won't go through this, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 through 10. Read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. You will find that that church was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the evidence that they were empowered by the Holy Spirit was two things. At least two things. One, there was joy in their suffering. And secondly, they sounded the word of God from them. They went everywhere. They couldn't, they couldn't keep it to themselves. And it will be like that uh, for us too when we learn what fellowship with the Spirit is. He will make much of Christ. He will make much of Christ. Uh, he will affirm to us our union in Christ. And He will empower us to witness for Christ. So think about uh, what it means. We are a people that tell the world a very radical message. We know God. And it's because we do. And we know Him as He is. He is God our Father, uh, full of love, manifesting His love, to fellowship in His love. We know God the Son, who is full of truth and full of grace. We are recipients of that every day, and we fellowship with God the Spirit, who makes much of Jesus through the Scripture, affirms to us our adoption, and empowers us to share the wonders of such a God with a world who needs to see Him. Let's pray. Father, we're so privileged. And forgive us when we take for granted uh, the privilege we have to fellowship with you and with your Son and with your Spirit. But we're so grateful that we are always met with love. We're always met with the fullness of grace. And we thank you that your Spirit has been given to show us all these truths. And so may we be mindful of this. May we guard our own hearts and strive for an obedience that ensures this fellowship would be real. That you protect us from the self-deception of religiosity and call it spiritual things. And Father, we just praise you and honor you that you've been faithful this day, this Lord's day. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.